Hello and welcome to Bible 101 Lesson 2. We will be continuing on with the Old Testament this evening. Um, If we could go to God in prayer real quick that he would have his will and have his way in this lesson tonight. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that you are and all that you've done. For being a great God, for sitting on the throne. Lord, we thank you for the word that guides us, that's a lamp into our feet and a light into our pathway. That thing that leads us out of darkness and out of temptation. God, we thank you for it. We ask that you would have your will and have your way tonight. We ask that divine revelation would settle upon the hearts and in the minds of every single person that I am teaching to. That you would simply reveal yourself through this teaching. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the first book that we will be focusing on this evening is going to be the book of Joshua. The author of Joshua is indeed Joshua. He is writing to Israel while they are in the promised land. And this was written somewhere around 1380 and 1370 B.C. The conquest is what the book of Joshua is about. The message of the book of Joshua is the book of Joshua tells the story of the conquest and settlement of the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, which is also Yehoshua, the Lord is salvation, is his name interpreted. Joshua is depicted as a savior or deliverer of the Israelites. He is the representative of Yahweh and the human instrument of the fulfillment of God's promises of a land to the children of Israel. <clears throat> uh, conquest of Canaan, Roman numeral one, is going to be preparation of the people. Uh, Before the author deals with the actual account of the conquest, he introduces several key elements that will be essential for Israel's military success against such overwhelming odds. These preparations will include mediating on the, or meditating rather, on the word of God and reciting its principles, challenging the people to total obedience, sending out two spies to identify their options, miraculously crossing the Jordan River on dry ground, setting up the memorial stones as a testimony to future generations, establishing the battle camp at Gilgal, circumcising circumcising the men who were not circumcised in the wilderness, and celebrating the Passover. Roman numeral two will be progression of the conquest. (coughs) We're going to start with the central campaign. The central campaign was built on a divide-and-conquer theory that drove a wedge between northern and southern Canaan, thus inhibiting these two entities from forming an alliance. This strategy allowed Israel to defeat each of them separately. Jericho was the first Canaanite city Israel conquered in her central geographic thrust. The southern campaign... In the southern campaign, the king of Jerusalem became fearful of Israel due to the nation's resounding victories at Jericho Jericho and Ai. <coughs> Thus, he persuaded the southern coalition, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, 
to attack the Gibeonites, thereby drawing Israel into open conflict. However, God's blessing was upon Israel, evidenced by his confounding of the enemy, by the hailstorm he sent to defeat Israel's enemy, and by the miraculous extension of the day that allowed Israel time to rout the enemy. Joshua eventually captured the five fleeing kings, publicly executed them, and conquered his southern territory. The northern territory will be that third <coughs> line. <coughs> After some time, Joshua advanced against the gathering uh, northern Canaanite coalition to fight them at Merom and handily defeated them with a surprise attack, routing their forces and destroying Hazar, the major Canaanite fortress city in the north. The division of Canaan unconquered land at this point the author inserts a list of unconquered regions that still remain independent of israel uh, israelite control these included pockets of philistines geshurites canaanites amorites and phoenicians <coughs> these will be left for future generations to deal with as is described in judges chapter 1 through chapter 3 these areas were not completely absorbed until the time of David and Solomon many years later. The East Bank Tribes Now that the Transjordan tribes fulfilled their obligations in helping liberate Canaan, the soldiers from these tribes were released from military obligation and allowed to return home. These tribes included Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh. The West Bank Tribes The decision to divide... The land by lot shows Israel's gains came about through compliance with the covenant since Moses originally mandated division by lot as the method to be used when apportioning the land among the tribes. <coughs> Caleb's proclamation of God's faithfulness and finally awarding him what was originally promised is included to show God's faithfulness to his faithful servant, Caleb. Designated cities, more examples of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises are given through the establishment of the promised cities of refuge the, uh, and the Levitical cities, <clears throat> the distribution of Levites among the people and establishment of cities of refuge were to help ensure spiritual, social, and civil justice in the future. <clears throat> Conclusion of Joshua's ministry, dispute about the altar. Joshua begins his final section of this book by recounting how the soldiers from the Transjordan tribes, after being given permission to return home, built an altar in the Jordan Valley, potentially rivaling Shiloh as the central sanctuary. Although there was an initial threat of war between the tribes, the situation was resolved amicably thus the altar was called ed which means witness in other words the altar was a witness to the unity between the eastern and western tribes which were united in their devotion to the lord <coughs> covenant renewal and death of joshua joshua's farewell address to the nation's leaders leaders attributes the nation's past blessings to its covenant fidelity he also explains that they will remain in Canaan and prosper in the land only when they comply with the Mosaic Covenant. 
Joshua concludes the book by recording the second covenant renewal ceremony at Shechem. Joshua summarized the history of Israel from her election to the conquest, reviewed the covenant terms, and encouraged the covenant's preservation. The book of Joshua contains two covenant renewal ceremonies. One of these ceremonies took place toward the end, toward the beginning of the conquest, and the last of these ceremonies took place after the land was conquered and divided. This section includes Joshua's affirmation, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In conclusion, many people, for many people, life <clears throat> is an ongoing battle. It's a conflict of values, a struggle of wills, maybe a war of nerves, or a battle of beliefs. God never really promised us that this life would be easy, but he does promise to go with us through every single conflict. Total surrender to him is the first step to complete and total victory. The book of Joshua also teaches us the importance of faith and obedience as keys to God's blessings. The reader is drawn to focus on key spiritual disciplines that are essential for spiritual formation. Prayer, med- meditation, faith, and courage are highlighted as keys to Joshua's success. The underlying theology of the book reminds the reader that spiritual discipline is the key to a victorious living. Vigilance must be consistent so that today's success might not turn into tomorrow's defeat. (coughs) Moving on to the book of Judges. Key facts about Judges. Uh, The author, the, the writer is anonymous. They're not exactly sure, but many believe that it's Samuel. In fact, the majority believe that it's Samuel. Uh, he is writing to the Israelites, and he is writing to the Israelites around 1050 to 1000 B.C. And this book is about the struggle. Judges is about the struggle. Most of the biblical judges were heroes or deliverers, more than legal arbiters as we have today. They were raised up by God and empowered to ex- execute the judgment of God upon Israel's enemies. The sovereignty of God over his people is seen in these accounts as God, the ultimate judge, judges Israel for her sins, brings oppression against her, and raises up human judges to deliver her from oppression when she repents. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, The reason for the judges. The period of judges followed the death of Joshua when Israel was left with no king, no central ruler. While the book of Joshua represents the apex of victory for the Israelite tribes, the book of Judges tells the story of their heartache and struggle to maintain control over the land. While the conquest of the land was relatively quick and decisive, the settlement pockets, uh, settlement of the tribal territories was slow and cumbersome. Many pockets of resistance remained And Israelites eventually settled on a policy of coexistence rather than conquest. The author concludes this section noting the cycles of apostasy, oppression, repentance, and deliverance that would follow because they would continue to sin and God would continue to 
raise up judges to deliver them. Rule of Judges, the first cycle, Othniel versus Cushan. The author introduces this section by listing those notions or those nations that continued to harass Israel, culminating in the invasion of Cushan from Aram, <clears throat> the area of northeastern Syria. After an eight-year oppression, the Lord raised up Othniel of the tribe of Judah to defeat him because the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The description of the Spirit-empowered judges is repeated seven times, emphasizing the real source of their power. Second cycle is Ehud versus Eglon. The second recorded invasion was led by Eglon, the king of Moab, in the, and a confederacy of the Moabites, Ammonites and Amalekites. They recaptured and rebuilt Jericho <coughs> and used it as a base against Israel for 18 years. Eventually, God raised up Ehud, a left-handed Benjamin, Benjamite who assassinated Eglon with a dagger hidden on his right hip. And this led to an attack that drove the Moabites back across the Jordan River. <coughs> the third cycle, Deborah and Barak versus the Canaanites. By the third cycle of Judges, Israel lost control of the northern re region to the Canaanites at Hazor. Caesarea, or Caesarea was the commander of a Canaanite army that included 900 iron chariots, and he used them to oppress the Israelites in that area for 20 years. God spoke to Deborah, who was serving as judge at the time, to summon Barak to challenge the northern tribes to confront the Canaanites at Wadi Kishon in the Jezreel Valley. When Barak refused to go unless Deborah accompanied him, she told him the credit for the victory would go to a woman. <coughs> Fourth cycle, Gideon versus the Midianites. The story of Israel's leadership crisis continued with the raiding attack of the Midianites and their Arab Bedouin allies. This, uh, things were so bad that the Israelites hid in the mountain uh, clefts while swarms of armed desert bandits pillaged the land for seven years. At that time, the angel of the Lord called Gideon from the tribe of Manasseh to lead a resistance. Fearful and reluctant, Gideon went from hiding in a winepress to making excuses and putting out fleeces. <clears throat> the spiritual weakness of Israel was indicated by the fact that Gideon's own father had a Baal altar in the family farm, which Gideon finally tore down. After this, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, so he blew a trumpet and rallied 32,000 men to go against the Midianite and Amalekite raiders. Fearful himself, Gideon was told to let all those who were afraid to go home and two-thirds of his army of volunteers left. When God thinned his numbers down to only 300 men at the spring of Herod, Gideon had to be reassured of success by overhearing the dream of the barley cake. During the night, he equipped his men with trumpets, pitchers, and torches, and surprised the unsuspecting raiders. The enemy was thrown into confusion, so the Israelites won an incredible victory by daybreak. Fifth cycle... Jephthah versus the Ammonites. When the Ammonites in Transjordan attacked the Israelites in Gilead, <coughs> the elders in desperation called the outcast Jephthah from the land of Tob to lead Israel in, in battle. 
The When Jephthah's negotiations with the Ammonites failed, he made a vow to the Lord Yahweh that whatever came out of his house to greet him upon his return from battle will belong to the Lord, and I will offer it as a burnt offering. When his daughter, not an animal, came out first, he was devastated. <coughs> Sixth cycle, Samson versus the Philistines. The final cycle involves Samson from the tribe of Dan. By this time... The tribe of Dan had already obtained their God-given territory in the land of the Philistines, leaving Samson's family and a few others in a displaced person's camp. The uniqueness of Samson was the Nazarite vow that was imposed on him from birth. Tragically, Samson ultimately violated all three stipulations of the vow, touching the unclean dead lion, participating in a drinking fest, and finally having his head shaved. <clears throat> Even his initial victory, or his yeah, his initial victory over one thousand Philistines was accomplished with an unclean jawbone from a dead animal. Samson's life story revolved around three women, all Philistines: the woman of Timnah, whom he attempted to marry; the prostitute of Gaza, and Delilah of the Valley of Sorek. Despite his gifts of physical strength given by the power of the Spirit, Samson's inability. To conquer his own passions ultimately led to his demise. Thus, the final cycle of the judges ends with Samson crushed beneath his rubble of a destroyed Philistine, Philistine temple and Israel still without a leader. Ruin of the judges. Idolatry. Micah was an Israelite from Ephraim who maintained a shrine of various household idols. So he bribed a Levite from Bethlehem to be his own personal priest. In the meantime, as the tribe of Dan was migrating north, they happened upon Micah's house, stole his idols, and talked the Levite into going with them. The apostate tribe of Dan was not only abandoned, had not only abandoned God's given inheritance, but forsook the Lord as well. The Danites attacked the city of Laish and renamed it Dan, making Israel's most northern city, but also a place infamous for its pagan practices. Immorality. The closing chapters of Judah, Judges tells the sad story of immorality, moral confusion, and a civil war between the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and the tribe of Benjamin. The end result was a brutal civil war that annihilated all but 600 men of Benjamin. Had the tribe of Benjamin been exterminated, there would never would have been a King Saul, an Esther, a Mordecai, or the Apostle Paul. The book of Judges ends leaving the reader realizing again that there was no king in Israel. Thus, the stage of divine revelation was about to set for the books that followed. Despite the dark days of Judges, a ray of hope was about to shine. And now on to the first and second books of Samuel. Uh, these were also anonymously written, though they could have been wrote by Samuel. Excuse me, Samuel or Nathan or possibly Gad. Uh, they were written to the United Kingdom of Israel around 960 BC. And this is these books are about kings and prophets. <clears throat> By showing the deficiencies of the final phase of the judges era, First Samuel is an apologetic for the new monarchy which God graciously establishes for his people in spite of their sin. The book also highlights the inferiority of Saul in comparison to David, whose rule was yet to be inaugurated. 
the promises to David and that David, excuse me, the promises to David anticipate the coming of David's greater son who will rule in perfect obedience to God's covenant. Therefore, 1 Samuel is the first biblical book in the English Bible to use the term anointed one or Messiah. <clears throat> the message of First and Second Samuel also highlights the role of prophets in relation to the kings. Samuel and Nathan confront the sins of Saul and David and call them to repentance. Whereas Saul make, makes excuses for his mistakes, David genuinely repents, saying, I have sinned. Transition from Eli to Samuel. God used Samuel to anoint Israel's first two kings, thereby transitioning the nation away from the judge's error and into the monarchy. Thus, the writer shows the preeminence of Samuel over the existing regime, and as represented by the household of judge priest Eli at Shiloh. The spirituality of Samuel's lineage is seen in Hannah's prayer for a child and her vow to dedicate the child to the Lord. Chapter 2 focuses on the wickedness of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, emphasizing the spiritual failure of this judge and his sons. The third chapter begins by mentioning a, the rarity of visions in those days, presumably due to the wickedness of Eli's household. Consequently, God discloses his plans to the boy, Samuel, the tender picture of God standing at the foot of his bed and calling the child by name shows the compassion of God for one person and his rejection of another. The message to Samuel is that God will bypass a disobedient generation and call a new generation to follow him. God reveals that he will destroy Eli's household and confirms Samuel as his divine spokesperson. Reign of Saul, Saul's selection. As Samuel aged, the people in Israel insisted that they should select a king like all the other nations. The events surrounding the selection of Saul as king demonstrated that the people, uh, it was the people's choice, but it wasn't God's choice. These people seem to focus more on Saul's outward appearance, him being head and shoulders above all other men, and they focused on that rather or more than they focused on the heart of the man. Even the events of Saul's coronation revealed God's displeasure. Samuel indicated that the people had rejected God in requesting such a king. I would remind you that David is a man that is, as the Bible says, after God's own heart. <coughs> Roman numeral 2, Samuel's warning. Samuel's subsequent, uh, Samuel's subsequent warning against national con covenant unfaithfulness demonstrated that God's vision for Israel's king was vastly different from the vision that the people espoused. Samuel's warning, accompanied by thunder and rain, caused great fear. So the people cried out, We have added to all our sins the evil of requesting a king ourselves. Thus, the author skillfully shows that Israel's request for a king was ill-motivated and ill-timed. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, not Judah, the promised Messianic tribe. God's timing was also awaiting a descendant from the tenth generation of Judah's son, Perez, but the people did not yet understand this. Saul's Rejection Saul's poor choices caused his kingdom to deteriorate rapidly, 
because he usurped the priestly functions while waiting for Samuel to offer the sacrifices at Gilgal. This caused God to vow that he would remove the kingdom from Saul. Saul's disobedience of the divine command to exterminate the Amalekites caused Yahweh to reject him as king. Samuel's confrontation with Saul over his sin in chapters 13 and 15 emphasizes the ministry of a prophet as a covenant enforcer. Samuel's anointing of David and David's resounding victory over Goliath in the Valley of Elah clearly introduced David as God's choice to lead the nation of Israel. David won a dramatic victory over Philistines because he separated himself from Saul's ways, depending on God alone and believed that the battle is the Lord's. Saul's failures. Saul's final years were filled with constant acts of jealousy and animosity toward David. Saul failed to kill David and wasted several years of time and energy pursuing David in the Judean wilderness. The theme of preservation is evident as David continues to escape Saul's pursuit in the wilderness of Judah near the Dead Sea Caves. David's character is also highlighted as he refuses to kill Saul, showing his respect for the office of the king and the significance of God's anointing. This is especially seen in the incident at the cave of En Gedi when David humiliates Saul but refuses to kill him. <clears throat> As a consequence, Saul acknowledges that one day David will be king. Saul's life ends in a tragic battle with the Philistines on Mount Gilboa where Saul commits suicide. Reign of David, David's faith. These chapters describe how David, the elect king, consolidates and unifies the entire nation under his authority. The high point of David's reception of the Davidic covenant. The high point is David's reception of the Davidic covenant. <clears throat> the covenant's unconditional nature and conditional blessings sets the tone for the remainder of the book. Further evidences of David's political ascent include his capture of Jerusalem from the Jebusites, his alliance with Hiram, king of Tyre, his many children, which were a sign of covenant blessings, his defeat of the Philistines, and his decision to move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. In faith, David won many military victories over his enemies because the Lord helped him by defeating his foes. David's covenant violations take place in the book's pivotal 11th chapter, they involved adultery and murder, as well as a host of deception, deceptive acts committed in an attempt to cover up these sins. Having been attracted to uh, Bathsheba's beauty, David sent for her, slept with her, and she became pregnant. Attempting to cover this up, David made arrangements for her husband's death and then married her. However, God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David's sin with the judicial parable about the rich man who stole the poor man's sheep. Infuriated by the story, David pronounced judgment upon himself and his household. God forgave David, but David suffered severe consequences, the death of a baby of his baby, plus the ruin of his family in the following chapters. David's foes, the outworking of the curses that Nathan predicted would come upon David, impacted both David's immediate family and the nation. Tamar's rape by her half-brother Amnon and his execution by her brother Absalom 
eventually led to Absalom's ill-fated rebellion and death. David's restoration to power finally came after the failed revolts of Absalom. David's fame. The author concludes with six non-chronological appendixes extolling the preeminence of the Davidic covenant. Each appendix brings out a different facet of David's covenant obedience. He vindicated the Gibeonites who Saul had sinned, properly buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, defeated the Philistines, sang a song of thanksgiving, and gave his farewell words expressing the confidence in the permanent covenant. The author concludes with a list of David's warriors and an account on the military census and resulting plague, which stopped at the fleshing, threshing floor of Arguana uh, in Jerusalem. David obeyed God in purchasing the threshing floor to build an altar to the Lord, and on this site Solomon would later build the temple. Uh, the books of First and Second Samuel explain the offices of both the prophet and the king and their interconnection with each other. The prophet rises above judges, priests, and kings as the spokesman for God. The seer becomes the prophet, who sees what is in the mind of God and announces it to the people of God, calling them to repentance and to faith. These books give us a model on the proper relationship with religion and politics. God's plan is for the spiritual sphere to inform the political leaders by calling them to administer righteousness and justice based on the truth of God's word. That is all we have for today's lesson. If we could go to God one more time in prayer. God, we once again come before you thanking you, Lord, for this opportunity to meet, to learn, to uh, understand you more, God, to be taught more about you. We thank you for it. We thank you for the help you've given us, for the abilities you have given us, God, <clears throat> to get here tonight and to live our life. We ask that you would simply, that these words that I've spoken would not just fall on deaf ears, that they wouldn't just prick the ears, but that they would prick the mind and the heart also, that somehow that a revelation of who you are and what you are and what you stand for would reveal itself in the hearts and in the minds of every single person in this room. God, I thank you. I ask that you would go with us, lead us, guide us, and bring us back at the appointed time. And we'll be careful to give you all the glory, the honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.